Hello, everybody. Um, before this gets started, I wanted to provide an important disclaimer and content warning. In this episode, I'll be discussing the topic of suicide, including its causes, impacts, and related issues. I get that this subject matter uh, can be deeply upsetting to people and might provoke strong emotional responses, so it isn't my intent to upset anyone. My, uh, my intention is to approach this topic, I should say, with empathy and uh, sensitivity. And my aim is to provide helpful information and resources as well. Uh, however, it is absolutely crucial to remember that I am not a mental health professional. I strongly urge you to seek professional support if you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of self-harm or suicide. Talking about it is good. If you find that this content is too difficult to listen to at any point, I encourage you to prioritize your well-being and consider stopping the episode. Your mental and emotional health should always be your top priority. And there is 100% no shame in taking a break or seeking support when needed. Throughout the episode, I'll be providing helpline numbers and resources for suicide prevention and mental health support. Please, please, Please make use of these resources. If you require immediate assistance or someone to talk to, I care about your well-being, and I want to ensure you have access to the help you need. Remember, this episode may be triggering for some folks, and it's okay to skip it if, you, uh, if you're not in a space where you feel comfortable engaging with it. If you or someone you know, again, is in immediate danger or experiencing a crisis, please contact emergency services in your country right away. If online, you can visit... Uh, 998lifeline.org and talk with someone there. And if you're in the U.S., um, you can dial 988 um, on your phone or call 1-800-273-8255 to reach the Suicide Prevention Hotline. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, even on holidays. There's nothing wrong with doing that if you, uh, if you need to at any time. I'll repeat that information later in the episode, too. Thank you for your understanding, and please take care of yourselves. Thank you. The following podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So, kids shouldn't be listening. Elton says fuck and shit a lot. Sometimes fucking shit, but rarely does he advocate actually fucking shit. You get it. Enjoy the show. Some critics have seen her as a lonely, shy carrier of a death wish. A death wish that is in everything she ever wrote. Others have seen her as an inevitable victim of male brutality, destroyed by a cheating, self-serving husband that was also undermined uh, by an ambitious mother, overcompensating for her own inadequate marriage. Today, a look into what's considered one of the greatest literary works of modern times, and what might be the most important and controversial book of poetry of the 20th century. And of course, its author, a single mother destined to be remembered for the wrong thing. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. like to remind you to get Elton Reed's book a week or get out. 
That uh, that tagline was generated by Shopify.com. So if you're in the market for a quick tagline slash slogan that's a little strange, uh, go there and you know get get something like uh like that weird shit I just said. This oh man, this is going to be a strange episode. Why? Uh, well, it's about Ariel, um, a book written by Sylvia Plath. For those uh, for those of us not in the know, um, she's the reason for that disclaimer. Uh, things will not turn out well for her, but but we're not there yet. So uh, first, how are you? Everything good? Did that thing you were looking forward to that uh, that go the way you wanted? Yeah. No. Eh. Want to talk about it? How about after? We could talk after. I'll be around. Right now, though, we delve into the days of tragedy. This was a difficult one for me because. Well, I mean, jokes aren't easy when you're dealing with with what we're running into today. Um, I'll try my best, but I'm I'm walking a tightrope. No, no shit, no shit, no shit. Look, um, I'll be upfront with you. As as I see our relationship, our relationship is having a, as much transparency as I can muster. Um, me being as weird. As strange as I am, sure there are things that uh that go on behind the scenes here that are um, but I try to keep you in the loop as much as I can. So with that in mind, uh, two things: one, I have a weird sense of humor. I always have. Uh, maybe you do too. I hope you do, uh, and I hope I can make you laugh sometimes. But with this, it's hard to find places like that to land. If you know what I'm saying, it's heavy, and I'm not aiming to diminish anyone's strife. Um, because that's wading into some really tricky uh, sociopathic waters. For me, anyway. And to be fair, I'm fairly sociopathic, I think. Just not full bore, I'm pretty sure. Regardless, that brings me to number two. I've struggled with depression my entire life. And yeah, up to uh, attempted suicide a few times. I had a breakdown a little later after that, but it was a long time ago. I got some help, some therapy, actually, uh, and I'm a much better place now. It's 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 something that happened, and I I still deal with it, uh, but with much much better approaches in place before it gets to a to a bad bad point. So when it comes to talking about other people and their dealings with things like that, I tend to defer to uh, understanding over ridicule. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean I'm not stocked up on gallows humor. It jumps out at the weirdest times. It really does. At work the other night, I thought about a clown car losing control on the highway and smashing into a tree. And then the headline the next day, or even later that night, would read, uh, Clown car crashes. One car involved. Hundreds of passengers dead and injured. Yeah, that makes sense to you. Welcome. Uh, the book this time around is the book Ariel by Sylvia Plath. It's a stunningly bizarre tale told in a series of poems about a character named Ariel and their increasing anger over having their name confused with various kinds of things named or involving Ariel, which is an adjective form or adjective meaning, uh, of, from, or in the air. It's, it's kind of hard to explain. So, so here's an excerpt from the first poem in the series titled, Quote, someone about to catch these hands, unquote. Uh, 
It was, it was written in the fall of 1961. Are you sure, sir? Because it sounds the same. What did I say, motherfucker? That is not my name. Y- yet you said Ariel, as in Ariel Antenna, did you not? Ugh, I said Ariel, as in that's not my fucking name, you fucking prick. Catch this fist in your fucking mouth till no teeth remain. I'll take no shit from you, kid. I'll knock you out, climb the roof, grab that fucking aerial antenna that's not me, beat you to death with it. I can't take this anymore. God damn it. Fuck you. Fuck rhyming. Fuck poems. Fuck the world. You hear me? Fuck the entire world. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that theme is carried on for, uh, for 26 more poems. Just... Just all anger. By the time you get to the 24th poem, which is titled, quote, Air Shows, who the fuck said air shows? Unquote. You, you really get a sense, you really start to get a sense that the uh, aerial character is a, it's a little unstable. Of course, that's not true in any way, is it? I, Jesus, you're going straight to hell. Do you know that? I'm well aware of that. Yeah. Well, I guess it's good to know you're prepared for the inevitable. Any word on when I can rest in peace again? Uh, we're we're working on it. We, we yeah. We, uh, I, I think you need to work on it a little harder, kid. I'm I'm we're uh, it'll well we'll 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 work it out, Shep. Yeah, we'll, well, I don't want to scare you, but I think you should know that hell hath no fury. Like a shepherd made to wait in limbo by an easily poltergeisted podcast host. I I will keep that in mind. Good. In the meantime, I'll just be here, sharpening up on my bed, spinning and dinner plate smashing, because you never know when that will come in handy. If you catch my drift, kid. If you catch my drift. Tick, tock, tick, tock. (sighs) Moving on. For the less literary-minded among us who uh, weren't put onto her work in school, uh, onto Sylvia Plath's work, um, the thing that usually you're told to read in school is the bell jar. Um, That usually makes it onto a reading list or other, right? I mean, you know, the required reading that that was most likely cliff-noted and fibbed into book reports. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Regardless... Let's wade into a little bit of brilliantly written poetic tragedy and come out a little smarter on the other side, okay? Who's with me? Oh, oh, stop. Okay. Who doesn't like a little tragedy now and then? Okay, a few Greek playwrights and a funny little guy named Shakespeare would disagree, okay? They built some healthy careers on it, and those uh, those stories were fake, more or less. So let's talk about Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath, who wrote, ready for using the pseudonym Barbara Streisand. Yeah, you heard me. Then, then just, just very recently changing it to Lady Gaga. That's right. That's right. They're the fucking same person. Blows your mind, right? Blows your fucking mind. Also, get this. When she moved to England... Uh, she changed her writing name again. Are you ready for this shit? To Helen fucking Mirren. And, and, Elizabeth Alexandra Mary Windsor. That's right. The Queen of fucking England. 
And get this, she often did it interchangeably. How is that even possible? Though, though if you think about it, have you ever seen Sylvia Plath, the world-famous poet, author, and Barbara Streisand, legend of stage and screen, and Lady Gaga, pop idol icon, singer lady, and award-winning actor, and I'm pretty sure she won an Oscar, Helen Mirren, and recently passed, only the only queen of England you'll ever know or will know, Elizabeth, in the same room? Have you ever seen all of those people in the same room at the same time? Of course not, because what the fuck am I talking about? I'm an idiot. Sorry, but imagining Sylvia, Sylvia Plath was secretly all of those people and the entire globe was just never questioning it or never wondering about it? I had to. It's so stupid in my head. So no, as cool and uh, time-traveling heavy as it would be, totally only one person, Sylvia Plath, was, was born October 27th. 1932 in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I don't know why I said it like that, but U.S. born. Uh, she was born in the U.S. in Boston. What the fuck am I blubbering about? Um, she was a healthy eight and a half pound baby. And a brother followed 30 months later. Uh, their father, um, Otto Plath, was born on October. Nope. <laughs> he was born uh, April 13th, 1885. That's not October. Um, he was a German immigrant who came to the U.S. to stay with his grandparents. Then pissed them off so bad that at 16, they kicked his ass out of the family Bible. You know you've gone uh, and done some horribly uh, wrong shit when your whole family um, no longer wants you associated with Jesus. Yep. After graduating from Harvard, no less, he would end up a professor of biology at the University of Boston, old U of B. I don't know what, I don't know what the University of Boston, anyway. So he landed pretty well, I guess, you know, uh, being a professor of biology at old U of B, no thanks to the family Bible. Although, he did encounter some discrimination at the University of California and was passed over for a scientific post due to being born on the wrong spot of planet Earth. East Prussia, where he was born at the time, was uh, pretty hated, and uh, mostly due to it being part of Germany, because of all the wars and stuff. You know, They so hated Germany that if you were born there before the current time of hate, it meant you were retroactively hated, even if you were a baby at the time. Who said it wasn't all right to hate babies? Am I right? Stupid 1830s, these Prussian-German babies. Crawl back home. Even though he moved to the U.S. when he was 15 and was a full-blown adult by the start of World War I, it doesn't matter. It was, fuck you, German baby. No job for you. Off with this head. Sorry, that didn't happen. Not the... Uh... Not to cut off the head part, I got carried away. Uh, he was he was discriminated against, just just not up to the point of demanded decapitation. <clears throat> so, Autoplath also happened to be a leading expert on bumblebees, because of course, of course, he was and is. Uh, you'll hear why. That's just classic Auto in a few seconds. He was teaching at the old U of B when he married one of his students. Fucking naughty auto B expert. Naughty. The student was Aurelia Schaber or Schuber. I don't know. Maybe both. Not both. Just one. I just don't know which. 
Otto was 46. She was 23. Ouch. Fucking naughty bee expert. Mm. In relations like that, it, in relationships like that, it, uh, it always seems like someone uh, is either really, really scoring or settled. Or in this case, probably a combo of both. Their courtship seemed to go very well. They went on hikes and stuff, which is early 20th century code wording, meaning fucking a lot. Somewhere in there, he wrote a book about bumblebees, which is how you kill the urge to fuck a lot. So I hear. Oh, and he wrote a chapter for another book on insect societies, which was probably about bumblebees, you know, which... Like I said, kills the libido. In others, a lot. Kidding. I'm kidding. Bee lovers. Bees are actually interesting, I think. Uh, I'm saying auto <laughs> more than anything is in all likelihood killed the urge to fuck. It's it's just classic, classic auto being auto. You know what I'm saying? Or not. Uh, bees. Um, auto. And uh, bees and uh, making people not want to have sex is classic auto. What am I still talking about auto for like this? Seriously, the sex thing is just an inference. Uh, the bee thing, though, is all too real. He really liked bees. Talked about them a lot. He was an expert on them. You know, the bees, that is. As in, as in you'll see, it was kind of an obsession. A deadly obsession. That's foreshadowing. Overall, things seem to be going pretty well, more or less, in what we'll discover is in an awful way. Shit's gonna suck real soon. Suck some fucking ass a lot. Before we get to the grand home life and the sucking a lot that will happen to the newlyweds, let's back up a little bit and have a look at Aurelia Schober, or Schuber, whatever, or in... <clears throat> And how she will soon be Aurelia Plath uh, once Otto seduces her into the hiking with all of his sexy bee talk. Uh, she was also known as Camellia, Camellia S. Plath, Aurelia Schuber Plath. Uh, the lady had more aliases than her daughter, Barbara Streisand Gaga Windsor Queen. Aurelia was the daughter of Franz Schuber of Bad Ossay. Styria, which is a lovely town in Austria, um, in the state of Syria. Styria. Which, I mean, for real, how fucking American am I that I didn't know Austria had states? Ah, you know, it's, it's just the American exceptionalism. American exceptionalism slash ignorance at play. The only federated structure I know or understand to exist is the United States. Bliss, folks. It's worth the drooling. No, it's not. It's really not. It's kind of terrible. Anyway, 15 other countries, by the way, have federated states. I looked that up, meaning a state, a province, a region, a canton, a land, a government, an oblast, an, a, uh, an emirate, or a country that is a Territorial, the territorial, Jesus, fuck. Or a country that is a territorial and constitutional community forming part of a federation. 
Such states differ from fully sovereign states, however, in that they do not have full sovereign powers, as the sovereign powers have been divided between the federated states and the central or federal government. You know, like the United States. God, fucking. Back to Aurelius Strober. Strober, who was not quite plath yet. Uh, she was born to Franz Strober, like I said, and his wife, Aurelia Grunwald, or Greenwood. Um, she was born on April 26th, 1907, in Boston, Mass. I don't, that's a terrible accent. Uh, Boston, Massachusetts. Sylvia Plath made reference to her grandmother by making Esther Greenwood the name of the heroine in her semi-autobiographical novel, The Bell Jar, which you were probably forced to read in school, Cliff Notes, etc. Shit is kind of sparse as to whether Aurelia had any weirdly bland nicknames regarding unhealthy hobbies and or crippling addictions. More foreshadowing. The relationship between Aurelia and her daughter later was rather problematic and an ambiguous one. For on one hand, they were exceptionally close to each other. And on the other hand, Sylvia Plath often claimed she fucking hated her mother. Their relationship is portrayed in Plath's novel The Bell Jar and in the poem Medusa. After, uh, I would, I should probably read uh, a little bit of Medusa here, but I'm telling you I read poetry so, so badly. You have no idea. It's clunky as fuck and I'm terrible at it. So I will save you. I will save you that misery. Uh, so forgive me. I know. I should read some, but fucking, oh my God. After teaching for two years at Cape Cod Community College in Hyannis, Massachusetts, Aurelia Frances Plath would devote herself to editing the, the personal correspondence of her daughter. She would release them later in a book called Letters Home, Correspondence 1950-1963 by Sylvia Plath. Um, that will be published in the future in 1975 and form the basis of a play of the same name by Rose Lehman Goldenberg. M. Goldemberg. Hmm. Some people would see her work with her daughter's, well, her daughter's work as a form of kind of clout chasing. Um, that's neither here nor there, though. Um, she held a master's degree in uh, English and German from Boston University, so she was schmott. Um, where she taught, she also taught uh, in college. Jesus, fuck, I'm stumbling all over the place. I'm so sorry. Uh, she also taught uh, practical arts and letters from 1942 to 1971. So, good run there. Uh, she developed a program for training medical secretaries. So, good on her, right? Good on her. Now back to Otto and his asshole house of asshole. Asshole. Otto was an autocrat at home, or as another source put it, a domestic tyrant. Read... Fucking dickhead. See, I didn't even say asshole again. Or Schwachkopf. Schwach, Schwachkopf, as you, as you would say in German. Uh, Schwachkopf is dickhead in German, so you're welcome. Ha. Um, he insisted, Otto did, that uh, he insisted that his wife give up teaching to raise their two children. Um, he would eventually take ill, um, and refused to see doctors while doing so. 
just... Instead, he chose to just bitch and moan the entire time, being a general pain in the ass for everyone in the house. Uh, he died three months after finally seeing doctors and being diagnosed uh, by them with diabetes. This would happen when Sylvia was eight years old. Oddly enough, Otto's profession and his diabetes were related. And it's real fucking weird. Like, so weird. As a boy... Otto had such a sweet tooth, a sweet tooth, a sweet toothy tooth so bad that he would stick long straws into beehives to get at their sweet, sweet honey. Yeah. Yeah, seriously. He wanted that sweet golden goodness so bad. He built a bee colony. Uh, he would eventually build a bee colony out of cigar boxes in his backyard just to keep a steady supply of that golden syrup flowing. The neighborhood kids even nicknamed him the King of Bees, which on a scale of 1 to 10 for interesting nicknaming, uh, tips the scale at a negative 7. I mean, the kid fucked around with bees because he was addicted to the honey. Is history trying to say that a team of German kids couldn't come up with anything better than the King of Bees with material like that? sticking straws into beehives and they, that's all they got was the king of bees i guess i guess that makes sense because i mean i'm guessing the i'm guessing the funniest things that germans can think of is invading countries unprovoked germans good at picking awful leadership and starting wars that kill millions bad at nicknaming who would have thought i mean i mean shit not even a they couldn't even come up with, like, an Otto von Bees mark. I mean, and I'm not even trying, Germans. They had they had a pretty good run, Germans. I mean, on leadership as of late, you know. So maybe they're coming around. You know, no word on the nicknaming yet, though. King of Bees. Give me a break. Still, do you know how addicted you have to be to chase down honey and fuck around with bees so much that you catch a nickname? He had to be dropping it into every conversation he ever had, and... And, and, and jabbing straws into every beehive any he ever ran across and get caught, like, so many times. Hey, Otto, where are you going? We're going to the park to play some football. Some soccer, as we don't call it here, but we call it football. Want to join us? Maybe. Well, uh, will you have any honey there? Sweet, rich, golden honey that oozes and drips down your finger when you... No. No, honey, Anto. We're just playing the... I'm not done. It flows down your finger, that glistening, amber nectar of the gods, whose only protectorates are, are the most fascinating creatures in the whole world. Do you know what that creature is, Hans? Ah... <sighs> Is it bees, Otto? Always with the bees, Otto. Do you want to play football with... Yes, yes, it is the bees, Hans. The precious guardians of the most precious golden miracle in all of the world, Hans. You're a weird motherfucker, Otto. Just weird. Otto was a junkie, flying high on that sugary age train. It wasn't nothing going to put him off. You hear that, Ma? Nothing putting Otto off that honey train, sweet tit of sugar, dreaming. No, ma, 
I'll die before you take it away from me. Mom, Pa, I'll die. And then he died of diabetes. Yep. Following that H train right to that final D station in the sky. The D, of course. Death. From diabetes. Yeah, I know. I know how wrong that was. I know. I know. And I apologize for it all. Believe me, every day of my life. Otto's shit attitude. His bout with diabetes and related ailments. His unwillingness to seek medical attention until figuratively the last second and subsequent death because of it consumed the energy of the entire household. And, and after his passing, it left his family penniless. Sylvia was left with feelings of grief and anger that would haunt her for the rest of her life and would end up finding its way into her poetry, most notably being referenced and found in the, the so-called bee poems, titled The Bee Meeting, The Arrival of the Bees, Stings, The Swarm, and Wintering. She even took up beekeeping later and wrote excitedly to her mother to describe the events of, the, of attending a local beekeeper's meeting in the Devon village of North Taunton, uh, where she had moved with her husband, Ted Hughes, and their young daughter in September of 1961. Uh, her son was born there in January of 1962. That's, that's happening a little bit later. Um, it seemed to be an idyllic setting for a perfect family life, you know, with bees. But that was later. However, back to Otto just now dying. When Aurelia Plath told her eight-year-old daughter Sylvia that her father was dead, the child said, I am never going to speak to God again. Wow. And then when she came home from school that day, she presented her mother with an oath to be signed that said, I promise to never marry again. While it is not known if Aurelia actually signed it, she never did remarry, so... Aurelia's mother uh, went to work as a teacher immediately and, and raised her two children alone. Still, Otto, the king of bees, would exert a lifelong hold on Sylvia, inspiring her bitter tirade uh, against him in her famous 1962 poem, Daddy, which uh, would be published in the book Ariel, um... I will put a clip of her reading it at the end. Uh, it's a great, it's a great and kind of brutal poem. Uh, some say it's about her mother too, but you know I don't know about that because I, I feel like I, I'm telling you I'd read it now, but I I read poems like shit, so just just know that I apologize. <laughs> uh, if you were looking to hear me read poems, fucking, I'm doing you a favor by not believe me. They're just I'm just awkward and stupid. So, constantly faced with financial crises after after Otto's death, um, she also suffered from overwork and ulcers. Uh, because of it, Aurelia managed, with the help of her parents, to teach full-time at Boston University, old B of U, and, uh, and then she made a sensible move to Wellesley, uh, where her two precocious children might take advantage of the fine school system. Life in the modest household was enlightening. Uh, little Sylvia gave the appearance of being a socially well-adjusted child and was identified as gifted as a child. Although growing up in her grandparents' house in Winthrop, it was cramped but enriching. She would live with her grandparents there, her mother and her younger brother Warren, until 1942. In a lot of ways, 
her life was just a regular old run-of-the-mill post-Great Depression stuff, you know, like being in the Girl Scouts and camping. Those early years gave her a powerful awareness of the beauty and terror of nature and a strong love and fear of the ocean. It wasn't all terror-filled love days of the ocean and nightmares and shit. Her mother read poetry and literature to literature. Why can't I say that word? Uh, her mother would read poetry and literature to her, like like Yeats, who would later become a favorite of hers. Um, Sylvia was a voracious reader. She was also an excellent student who dazzled her teachers in, in Winthrop, uh, Massachusetts, <laughs> if I didn't say that before. Um, and she dazzled them in the public school system and earned straight A's and praise for her writing abilities. She was just eight and a half when her first poem was published in the Boston Herald. This is from uh, lithub.com. Eight-year-old Plath submitted her work to the Boston Herald with a letter that read, Dear Editor, I have written a short poem about what I see and hear on hot summer nights, and it ran in the Sunday paper on August 10th, 1941. Here is the brief, charming poem titled simply Poem. I hear crickets chirping, gunshots at night, people screaming. It's such a delight. That was not it at all. But, uh, okay, no, that was not what it is, but how fucked up would that be if they were like, eight years, wow, we're publishing that. No, her, um, her real poem read, uh, hear the crickets chirping in the dewy grass. Bright little fireflies twinkle as they pass. Plath's letter ended with, thank you for my good sport pin, as, uh, as she was a member of the Herald's Good Sport Club for children. So it's very nice. The editing impulse was present in Plath's life. Uh, even then, those four lines appeared in a longer, unpublished poem uh, she wrote that same year titled My House. In that poem, the first two lines, at night I hear the crickets chirp in dewy... <sighs> I keep wanting to twist it and I'm so sorry. I'll, I will not. In, the, in that poem, the first two lines read, at night I hear the crickets chirp in green and dewy grass. And that's all. The publication of her first poem showed that Plath was a precocious talent. So it's perhaps not surprising that her mother persuaded her daughter to take an IQ test when she was 12. Notably, Plath scored 160, according to most metrics, that's genius-level intelligence, um, which starts at uh, 140. So if you're wondering, with an IQ of 140, if you're a genius, you just made the mark. Um, that made Plath one of the brightest minds of her age, you know. <laughs> and for a genius with a... Uh, with an IQ of 160, that poem fucking sucked. I mean, it's only four lines long, but come on. That's not even a poem. That's a stanza of a poem. What a ripoff, eight-year-old Sylvia genius. What the fuck? I'm kidding, of course. I know absolute shit about poetry. At eight, I was drawing cartoons poorly on the side of dressers and, and not even accidentally making a fucking poem. And yes, yes. She was actually a genius, a certified, tested genius, which, of course, I instantly recognized uh, from her later writing, instantly, um, any, anything I read about her. Because, of course, player, 
recognize this player as someone who, alongside Bill Gates, if you'll recall, listener who has definitely heard the episode about Bill Gates, I scored a 1590 on my SATs, or so I tell everyone. Um, the, a genius understands geniuses, people. <laughs> it's genius, genius stuff. Because I'm a genius, genius, doing genius stuff. It's all, that's all I'm saying. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Then, then from Sylvia, from Sylvia, the actual a genius, came a torrent of work from her. Very early, she set herself on the course of becoming a professional writer, firing off poems and articles while still a young girl. Her first national publication came just after high school in the pages of the Christian Science Monitor. She won many literary contests and while still in high school, sold her first story to Seventeen magazine. In 1950, uh, Plath matriculated at Smith College on a scholarship. A private women's liberal arts college in Massachusetts um, is what Smith College is. Uh, she excelled academically. By the end of her first year at Smith College, Plath had earned a reputation for being extremely bright and uniquely talented. She even edited their, their newspaper thing called the Smith Review, um, which is a one of their collegiate college publications. Even though, even though she had a scholarship, Sylvia still had to earn money while studying. For her first two years at Smith College, she held down a number of jobs to help pay rent and uh, for her accommodation in the yellow-walled Haven House. As w uh, she waited tables, she peeled potatoes in a local kitchen uh, while participating, by the way, in local amateur boxing and mixed martial arts matches held in secretive locations and back rooms in and around the area. She would earn money fighting in these bloody, overly violent boxing matches just for women. And the illegal fighting ring, by the way, that after an extensive investigation done decades later, it was found to have all been started by none other than Hillary Clinton. After being drummed out of the All-Women's Collegiate Pugilist League at Wellesley College, Hillary Clinton went to Smith College and started an illegal boxing ring in which Sylvia Plath became champion and won the largest purse, $250,000. And then the Yakuza came in. There was gunplay. Sylvia wasn't prepared for that. She'd only ever practiced on the swords. And she used all the swords on all the Yakuza. Later, Sylvia would only mention the matches she participated in, in offhand, often obtuse ways. More often than not, uh, sprinkling them in her poetry. One example being the first stanza from the poem, All the Dead Deers. Quote, rigged poker stiff on her back with a granite grin. This antique museum case lady lies companioned by the gym crack. Unquote. It's pretty obvious Sylvia is talking about a glass-jawed hussy she knocked out cold with a hard right cross. When asked point-blank about her involvement in the illegal, underground, bare-knuckle boxing matches just for women, she would often defer simply stating that <sighs> the first two rules of the organization were not to talk about the organization. So yeah, 
Sylvia Plath. Just one hard-ass gangster motherfucker. And a poet. Everything, of course, after, after peeling potatoes. Just nonsense. I mean, Hillary Clinton was like four fucking years old at the time. Though, though what, what if Sylvia Plath was part of Fight Club? I mean, there's nothing saying she wasn't. Prove she wasn't. You can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. Oh, boy. Uh, no. On several occasions, Plath lamented her modest background, even resenting her family for not being wealthier. That's a little harsh, but I guess if you're surrounded by rich folks, I mean. According to some of Plath's biographers, this made her work even harder as she tried to prove herself among the uh, wealthy elite young ladies she studied alongside. I get it. It's motivation. Sure. And then, uh, and then she won a contest and was a co-winner of the Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle, Mademoiselle magazine fiction contest in 1952, winning a guest editorship position at Mademoiselle uh, magazine, one of 20 month-long placements starting in June 1953. Things seemed to be going well. She had published many short stories by then, and not only won two poetry prizes from Smith, the uh, the Ethel Olin Corbin Prize and the Elizabeth Babcock Award, uh, which netted her $120, but she had also been commissioned by Mademoiselle, um, I'm probably saying that wrong, Madam, Mademoiselle, I can never say that right, Mademoiselle, um, she was commissioned by them to interview Elizabeth Bowden in Cambridge. Then um, something happened that made everything take a turn. It was around this time that her depression uh, really started to push through. It came after what turned out to be a difficult stint as a guest editor at Mademoiselle magazine in uh, New York. Sylvia described her time in New York as a deadly mix of pain, parties, and work. Her mother noticed cuts on her legs after Plath returned from her internship in New York City. There may or may not have been an assault there of some kind while she was there. Aurelia, I mean, in addition to the cuts on her legs, there may have been an assault that is alluded to many times, but never actually stated directly. Uh, Aurelia took her daughter to uh, their family physician. On July 29, 1953, Plath received her first electroshock treatment, administered by psychiatrist J. Peter Thornton. On August 24, 1953, she overdosed on sleeping pills. Um, she did that when she crawled under the house in Wellesley, Massachusetts, and waited for the end. She would later write of how she, quote, blissfully succumbed to the whirling blackness that I honestly believed was eternal oblivion, unquote. Two days later, with her family frantically searching and unaware that she was under their feet, Sylvia Plath was later discovered moaning and barely conscious. At first, Plath was a missing person, but within a day, it was discovered that her sleeping pills were gone. As a result, the police concluded Plath attempted suicide and updated the public via news sources. Her mother, Aurelia Schober Plath, was the only family member quoted in the papers at the time. It sounds peculiar, she said, but she has set standards for herself that are almost unattainable. She's made almost a minor obsession of fulfilling what she believes to be her responsibility to her sponsors, and I am gravely concerned for her. The following day, Mrs. Plath added, 
she recently felt she was unworthy of the confidence held for her by the people she knew. For some time, she has been unable to write either fiction or her more recent love, poetry. Instead of regarding this as just a dry period, you know, that every writer faces at the time, Sylvia believed something had happened to her mind, that it was unable to produce creatively anymore. That's also something that, that happens to a lot of writers all the time. It's like, it's like personalizing and internalizing writer's block to the point you see it as a permanent failure on your part. It can be crippling. Mrs. Blatt's statement concludes, Although her doctor assured us this was due to nervous exhaustion, Sylvia was constantly seeking ways for which to blame herself for the failure and became increasingly despondent. That's so terrible. Plath chose to attempt suicide while her mother watched A Queen is Crowned at the Exeter Street Theater in Boston, the afternoon of August 24, 1953. That is a British Technicolor documentary. The film documents the 1953 coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Sylvia took a bottle of sleeping pills, filled refilled just Friday, just the Friday before. And she took that along with a glass of water and a blanket into the basement. Sleeping pills, uh, by the way, that she had gotten from a doctor that her mother took her to when she uh, suggested that the world sucked and that uh, she and her mother should die together. <sighs> it's terrible. Then, uh, then she went into a crawl space underneath the house, uh, which was directly below the screened-in breezeway, which connects the house to the garage. It was blocked by firewood. Sylvia carefully uh, removed the logs and then replaced them, uh, concealing herself completely. Then she swallowed 40 of the sleeping pills. 40 pills! Jesus. She then swallowed 40 of those pills, and it, and it, took, nearly 300, it, it took nearly 300 hours to search for Sylvia. I never, th never thought to wonder why uh, she was such a public figure uh, from just from just being a new great writing talent. You know, not every writer is ever as widely known as Sylvia Plath, even some great ones. And so, what eventually does happen to her? Why did it make the? Why did it hit the news? Why did everyone in the world suddenly know? Like because of that? Why? So, I mean, other than. Other than what we'll be talking about in a few minutes, um, her notoriety actually kind of started here when she was reported missing. It became a big deal, almost like a story that goes viral today or, you know, some newsworthy event. There were 172 articles written about her over this disappearance, and it was published in over 40. It was published in over 50 papers. Sorry. They all carried the story for the search for her. The trauma in New York, and uh, also coming home um, to the news of a rejection um, for a placement in a short story summer course at Harvard. Um, she was rejected for that. Also seeing how end-of-life care for patients were at a hospital she was working at at the time, uh, it was foreshadowing. Uh, she felt that, that it was foreshadowing of how we all will end up. And on top of that, the electroshock therapy being the most recommended treatment for depression at the time. I, uh, well, they were, 
they were too much. It was all too much for her. Her solution was an overdose. She survived this first suicide attempt. Uh, later, writing that, um, like I said before, she blissfully succumbed to the whirling blackness that she honestly believed was eternal oblivion. She couldn't sleep. Um, when her boyfriend at the time left for officer training, uh, and she had a ridiculous, she had ridiculous fantasies about him, and decided, also decided that all at this was happening at the time. She decided that all her talent had suddenly left her. Afterwards, uh, I guess she was given another course of electroshock therapy at a hospital she was working at, and spent the next six months in psychiatric care, receiving more electric uh, shock and insulin shock treatment under the care of Dr. Ruth Boucher. Her stay at McLean Hospital and her Smith scholarship were paid um, by Olive uh, Higgins Prouty, who was successfully recovering herself from a mental breakdown. Um, Sylvia was driven to the hospital by Aurelia's friend, Betty Aldrich, who lived across the street. I remember my mother telling me that Sylvia really hated to go, but she knew she had to, says Peter Aldrich. Sometimes Aurelia had to force her into the car. I thought, what are they doing to her? I had visions of an electric chair. My only glimpse of her after her treatment was one day when she was coming out of my mother's car and she seemed uncharacteristically lifeless. I thought, that's not Sylvia. What have they done to her? It was almost as if the life had been sucked out of her. Because the psychiatrist did not give Sylvia a drug or a shot to anesthetize her before exposing her to, to this gear, uh, Sylvia felt so traumatized by the electroshock therapy electrodes, electrodes sorry, that were attached to her temples that she felt not so irrationally as if she were being electrocuted for some unknown crime. I can imagine. Jesus. Sylvia believed that she was being punished. But for what? What had she done? Had she been too ambitious? Set her sights too high? Was it because she was a woman and a writer? Around the time Plath received the treatment, electroshock therapy in the United States was frequently given in the office of the psychiatrist without the benefit of anesthesia, muscle relaxers, or emergency equipment. Treatment involved placing metal probes on the temples that shot strong currents of electricity charging through the patient's body. Once the treatment was completed, the doctor brought Sylvia out to the waiting room where, uh, where her mother and neighbor drove her home. Dr. Thornton treated Sylvia for the first few times, but then he went on vacation and left Dr. Tillotson in charge of several more sessions. On this session, Dr. Brian Cooper, medical doctor, also writes, uh, quote, After inflicting gashes on her legs and talking of suicide, she was referred to a psychiatrist and started on electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, um, which seemingly convinced her that she was fated to become insane. Yeah. Jesus Christ. What the fuck? It is still used today, but under very, very different circumstances. Today, ECT is administered to an estimated 100,000 people a year, primarily in general hospital psychiatric unit, units, 
and in psychiatric hospitals. It is generally used in treating patients with severe depression, acute mania, and certain schizophrenic syndromes. According to the Mayo Clinic, ECT, or electroconvulsive therapy, as I said before, seems to cause changes in brain chemistry that can quickly reverse symptoms of certain mental uh, health conditions. Today, it's given under general anesthesia, using only very small currents. It now uses electric currents given in a controlled setting to achieve the most benefit with the fewest possible risks. Is that better for me? I don't know. I can't really say. I can't say I'm not a doctor. Holy shit, I am not a doctor. You do better to confer with a doctor about it. Please, don't get your medical advice and knowledge of medicine or anything from podcasts, folks. Especially, especially. Do you hear that? Especially, especially from this one. Please, me, a non-doctor. And especially me talking about stuff like this. I can't bring myself to lick a 9-volt battery to test it, okay? I'm... Go talk to an actual doctor. They can assure you and talk to you about the procedures, talk to you about it and everything. Um, yeah, go go do that instead. It's a perfect time uh, for this. Again, if you or someone you know is in immediate danger or experiencing a crisis, please contact emergency services in your country right away. If online, you can visit uh, 988lifeline.org and talk with someone there. In the, U- in the U.S., God, you can dial 988 on your phone or call 1-800-273-8255 to reach the Suicide Prevention Hotline. Okay, so do that if you need to. 100% do it. Uh, Plath never had a manic episode, but there were probable hypomanic periods in her life. In February 1953, Plath seemed to make a good recovery and return to college. In January of 1955, she submitted her thesis, The Magic Mirror, a study of the double in two of Dostoevsky's novels. And in June, she graduated from Smith with the highest honors, graduating summa cum laude. Laud? Summa cum laude. Laud. Whatever. She obtained a Fulbright scholarship to study in Newham, Newham, Newham College, <laughs> uh, one of two women-only colleges of the University of Cambridge in, in England, where she continued and actively, uh, actively wrote poetry and published her work in the student newspaper Varsity. At Newham, she, she studied with Dorothea Crook, whom she held in high regard. She spent her first year uh, winter and spring holidays traveling around Europe. At Cambridge University, where she studied on the Fulbright Fellowship from 50, 55 to 57. Um, actually, the Fulbright Fellowship was pretty hard to get. You only, uh, only about 20% of applicants receive it. Uh, Sylvia moved from brilliant boyfriend to brilliant boyfriend, as one source put it. Um, as you would expect any young woman going to college, they would do. It's fucking college, motherfucker. I mean, come on. She does her college socializing, you know. And does all that until famously meeting Ted Hughes at a raucous party on February 25th, 1956. Hughes, seeing her for the first time with her blonde hair and red bandana headband, bando, bandu, red bandu headband. And as he later put it in a poem, 
quote, legs that simply went on up, unquote. Hot damn Teddy. Uh, he thinks, actually, he thinks she must be Swedish. The attraction was immediate. After spying him at the party, Sylvia said he was the only man there big enough for her. They talked for a while, then Hughes ripped off her headband and kissed her violently. Oh, oh shit, okay. She responded by biting Hughes on the cheek, drawing blood. What the fuck? Yikes. Anyway, aggression was an ingredient in their relationship from the start. Although Plath gave the impression of a serious, sensible girl, sophisticated and poised, below the surface was a wildcat, apparently, uh, was a, with a deep, insatiable hunger. Hughes, she thought, might just be able to satisfy it. Hot. Weird. But, but hot, sure. Plath read the writings of British poet Ted Hughes before she met the man himself. Only months after that first meeting, they married in 1956. And the late 1950s found the couple living back in Boston. For a while, the marriage worked. They traveled first to Spain, then, then to meet his parents in Yorkshire. Sylvia took her final exams for her degree during this time. After Plath earned her graduate degree, she returned to America to accept a teaching position at Smith for uh, the 1957-1958 school year. In August of 1957, they were in America, vacationing in Cape Cod, Cape Cod, Maine. In September, she began teaching at Smith College, but in May of 58, after less than two years of marriage, the first signs of a rupture appeared. They quarreled after Sylvia had found Ted with a girl. The pit of insecurity started to open. She tried to pivot to something else. The major event of that year was, the, was a seminar given by the poet Robert Lowell. Um, for, for a while, she attended a poetry course given by, uh, given by him, and, then, uh, and that's where she met the poet Anne Sexton. Sexton's and Lowell's influences were incredibly important to her development, to Sylvia's development as a poet. Both urged her to write about more private subjects. Plath and her husband, Ted, were invited as writers in residence to Yaddo in Saratoga Springs, New York, where they lived and worked for two months. It was there that Plath completed many of the poems collected in The Colossus, her first volume of poems. Her first child, Frida, was also born then in 1960. Sylvia seemed to be doing better. The nature of her relationship with her husband portended, you know, friction. She worshipped her husband whom she considered the male counterpart of myself, always just that many steps ahead of me intellectually and creatively so that I feel very feminine and admiring. Sylvia had apprehensions before their marriage, but those earlier fears were completely wiped out, and ironing and cooking in those first early days were celestial to her. She was delighted with her domestic life, and and though, uh, though we only know of these uh, via reports of bliss, <laughs> that she wrote to her mother. There seems to be an unmistakable honesty in her glowing reports on the pleasures of her child motherhood. During her last three years, Plath abandoned the restraints and conventions that had bound much of her earlier work. She wrote with great speed, producing poems of stark self-revelation, and, and they were confessional in nature. 
her work. It was a new approach to poetry then. The phrase confessional poetry burst into common usage in September of 1959 when the critic M.L. Rosenthal coined it in his review of Robert Lowell's Life Studies in the Nation. How about that? The anxiety, confusion, and doubt that haunted her was transmuted into verses of great power and pathos, born on flashes of incisive wit. Many of her poems explored her conflicted relationship with her father. Though she was making good progress with a new direction in her work, um, her relationship with Ted took another turn. In 1961, the couple rented their flat at Shalcott Square to Asiya Nee Gutmann and David Weevil. Hmm. Hughes was immediately struck with the beauty of Asiya, as, uh, as she was with him. In February of 1961, Plath's second pregnancy ended sadly in miscarriage. Several of her poems, including Parliament Hill Fields, addressed this event. In a letter to her therapist, Plath wrote that Hughes beat her two days before the miscarriage. In August, she finished her semi-autobiographical novel, The Bell Jar. And immediately after this, the family moved to Green Court in the small market town of North Taunton in Devon. Hughes began to keep Hughes began to keep bees, which would be the subject of many of Plath's poems. So 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 many bees in this I what a weird thing to learn about being associated so heavily with Sylvia Plath and it just comes in so many points in her life. It's just just wild. On January 12th, 1962, uh, Sylvia and Ted welcomed their second child, baby Nicholas, into the world in London. Plath was distressed that Hughes seemed disappointed that his second child was a boy. What the fuck, Ted? You're not doing all that great in this so far. During the early months of uh, his second child's life, Hughes appeared distant and openly, openly flirted with a sea of evil. <sighs> one half of a couple who were subletting the apartment that I mentioned earlier. Fucking Ted, come on. In June 1962, Plath had a car accident, which was, which she described as, as one of many suicide attempts. In July of 1962, just, just a month later, uh, Plath discovered Hughes had been having an affair with the Sia Weevil. As Plath's marriage dissolved, she and Hughes separated in September 1962. She, uh, she had no reason to protect Hughes any longer. In a series of 14 intensely personal letters to psychiatrist Ruth Boucher, Boucher on September 22, 1962, she wrote, Ted beat me up physically a couple of days before my miscarriage. What the fuck, Ted? What in the fucking fuck? God. In September 1963, consulting her GP, uh, she complained of depression. And for the first time, she told him of a of serious suicidal attempt she had made uh, 10 years earlier, of at least one. Times were terrible and only got worse. The weather that winter was frightful and isolating. Sylvia was in the grip of a long depressive cycle, yet strangely... 
Poetry had been flowing from her pen. Her semi-autobiographical novel, The The Bell Jar, was published in England, though under a pseudonym, under the pseudonym, Victoria Lucas. Why a pseudonym, you might be asking? Because Plath didn't want to upset her mother, Aurelia, or other people who were featured in the book. In addition to the pseudonym and being an American, she requested that The Bell Jar not be published in America as its story elements were clear enough that she feared her family and acquaintances would recognize themselves in it. Ergo, American readers would have to wait until the next decade for her only novel to officially reach their shores. There were lots of bootlegs before that, though. In early 1963, Sylvia was living in a flat in London with the two children she had with her husband, the poet, what the fuck is up with you, Ted, Hughes. The couple was separated due to Hughes having an affair with Asiya since the previous summer. In September, they officially separated, and in December, at the start of one of the worst winters in memory, Sylvia and the children moved into 23 Fitzroy Road. It was hard. Sylvia did her best, but the children were demanding, as children often are, and the flat was barely furnished. She had very few friends, and it was very, very cold. On top of this, Ted, the man who was supposed to be there for her as her father had been, had abandoned her. As she felt her father had. She tortured herself thinking of the fun that Ted and Asiya were having, while she, Sylvia, was alone in a half-empty, freezing house with the children. She tried. She pushed. She set herself an impossible work schedule, as she had done many, many times before. She would paint, repair, put the house in order, take care of Frida and Nicholas, and write, and write, and write. But life didn't work out that way. She couldn't find the time. She had an all pair. But that that didn't last. One friend she did have was A. Alvarez, or Alfred Alvarez, who met her and Hughes in 1960. He remembered that that Christmas Eve in 1962, when she asked him to come over uh, for dinner and to hear some of her new poems. He said he would come by for a drink, and when he did, he was surprised. She seemed different. He had never seen her so strained. He listened to her poems in the cold, bare flat. He felt the proximity of death was palpable and thought she was in some kind of borderline psychotic state. From October 1962 to February 1963, the period between Hughes leaving and her death, Plath was prolific, writing more than 26 poems. Several of those were included in the 1966 posthumous collection we're talking about tonight, Ariel. Those pieces are what some have considered her greatest works. They explore her pain over her father's death, her difficult relationship with Hughes, and the abandonment she felt over both. Then, in 1963, after this burst of productivity, she took her own life. On the night of Sunday 11th, February 1963, after leaving out some glasses of milk and slices of bread for her children's breakfast, although they were too young to feed themselves, 
Sylvia Plath opened the window of her children's room in her maisonette at 23 Fitzroy Road in the Primrose Hill area of North London. Then she carefully sealed off her, her kitchen door on the floor below with towels and adhesive tape. She left a note with only four words written on it. Quote, please call Dr. Hoarder, unquote, along with the doctor's phone number. She put that on a baby carriage. Finally, she laid out a cloth for a pillow, turned on the gas, and put her head deep inside the oven. When the au pair, who had come to help with the children, arrived the next morning, she heard the children crying, but was unable to get into the house. Eventually, with the help of a builder, the door was forced. Immediately, they smelled the gas. The children were shivering but unharmed. London was in the grip of the coldest winter in 150 years, and the house was barely heated. Then they opened the window in the kitchen, turned off the gas, and pulled Sylvia into the living room where the nurse tried mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Of course, it was too late. Sylvia was dead. According to the doctor at the University College Hospital who examined her body, she had died at around 8 a.m., although an earlier examination at the scene suggested her death had occurred sometime between 4 and 6 a.m. Earlier, Trevor Thomas, who lived below her and was the last person to see her alive, claimed that at around 12.30 a.m. he had seen her in the hallway. She asked him, for some airmail stamps a few hours before her suicide. If she needed stamps, it's been thought that it that there must have been uh, some last letter. No one is sure. Many believe that it was for a suicide note addressed to her mother, Aurelia, that at some point it went astray. Quote, with her head raised with a kind of seraphic expression on her face. That's, that's how the neighbor described how she looked. When he asked if she was well, she replied, I'm just having a marvelous dream, a most wonderful vision. If this was so, then she must have finally decided to go through with it, not long after Thomas spoke with her. How gut-wrenchingly awful he must have felt. All, the, all that regret, I mean, just imagine just trying to imagine what he could have done differently or said differently or something, some, some magical thing that would have turned it all around. <sighs> Can't even imagine how he felt. When Plath ended her life, she left behind a manuscript titled Ariel and Other Poems. Ariel was as much a part of Plath's suicide as the famous details of her death. When her body was recovered from her London flat, her manuscript was on the kitchen table next to it. But that manuscript was never published. Instead, a very different book called Ariel arrived in bookshops in the UK in 1965 and sold a phenomenal 15,000 copies in 10 months. In the US edition, which varies slightly from the UK edition, 12 of the poems Plath had included had been cut, and 15 new ones added in their place. Several poems had been bummed out of their original order. Much to the dismay of some admirers of Plath, uh, Hughes became her literary uh, executor after her death. 
Ted Hughes, Plath's estranged husband of whom she had shortly before her death written, quote, I hate and despise him so I can hardly speak, unquote. That, that Ted made, made the changes in the book, inviting some charged questions about his apparent conflict of interest as both um, Plath's, Plath's executor and the uh, impugned subject of her poetry. While there has been some speculation about how he handled her papers and her image, he did edit what is considered by many to be her greatest work. As I mentioned before, Ariel, the book featured um, the book features several of her most well-known poems, including Daddy and Lady Lazarus. The book was published in 1965 to much fanfare. One critic remarked that her poetry would have been valuable no matter what she had written about. What she did write about, motherhood, identity, despair, ensured Plath a posthumous place in the canon of great American poets. Most of the poems were written during the last five months of Sylvia's life. With this volume, she attained what amounted to cult status for her cool, unflinching portrayal of mental anguish. Although the poems range in subject from the pastoral chores, like the bee poems, to medical trauma of, of the poem Tulips, each contributes to the impression of the inevitability of the author's self-destruction. Some narratives routinely need a quintessential bad guy. Hughes, uh, he fit that bill because he was already cast as the, as the uh, deserting husband. Um, he was attacked for his, uh, for his approach to the editorship of Ariel. When it was revealed that he had deleted several poems from the original manuscript assembly, an assembly that was meticulously prepared by Plath for publication. Moreover, he had added some poems and had rearranged her planned sequence. Well, sh well, shit hit the fan. Plath herself had emphasized that her finalized aerial collection began with the word love and ended with the word spring. Her decision to conclude Ariel with her group of bee poems, written in early 1962, was, in the view of several critics, an assertion of her optimism and determination to survive. Arguably, it was in Hughes's interest for the Ariel that had been published in 1965 to reflect any internal psychological frailty that foretold her suicide, and thus to deflect critical attention away from any contribution the mutual hostility within their recent marital collapse might have had. I get the sentiment behind this. I really do. The wanting to blame the estranged husband who had, who had an affair that broke her heart, that broke the mother of his children's beautiful, poetic heart, and drove her to despair and suicide. It's a tidy, well-worn, heart-wrenching story that makes it easy to point fingers. You really have to remember that real life, if ever, isn't that tidy. It's always more complicated, isn't it? Yes. He edited her work in a way she didn't appear to intend. But as stated in the restored Ariel, the, the one I have that, that has both Hughes's version and the original manuscript, and a beautifully a beautiful forward written by Frida Hughes, um, Sylvia's daughter. Um, throughout their time together, their relationship was everywhere. Sylvia and Ted's. As for writing, Sylvia had shown her her work to Ted as as she was writing them. 
Sure. Yes. After their separation, and probably a little before that, she kept her poems to herself. But when the time came to do something with the work after her passing, it went to someone who knew her best and knew her work best. Now, whether he was self-serving in his editing, I don't know. Maybe. Probably. Who knows? I get that angle, though. However, at the end of the day, it's just another outside opinion looking in. The true reasoning and intentions lie inside a relationship with an intimacy and a history no outsider is or was ever privy to the details of. Overall, Ted Hughes faced a dilemma with Ariel. The material was abrasive to family, friends, and people close to Sylvia. It seems like he opted to forego those pieces in favor of making the book more accessible for general readership. Again, speculation. On my part. But I mean, it's a choice you have to make without conferring with the writer. You know? The version I have, like I said, is the restored version with both Ted Hughes' edited, uh, his edited version and the omitted and uh, added poems and a, uh, a facsimile of of Sylvia Platt's original manuscript complete with notes. It's a, in its original order. It's absolutely marvelous. It really is. It, I've always liked Sylvia Platt's poetry. It, it has a unique flow to it and it, it's vivid and emotional. Full disclaimer though, like I said before, I can't read poetry for shit for real. I, and on another level, I can't analyze it really well. I don't, I just don't have the equipment. I don't know how, and I don't keep the context in my head or whatever. I kind of see them each as their own individual. It's complicated and stupid. I've always felt I didn't appreciate it on a better level. You know, smarter people do as what they do. Still, I think it's glorious. I've always seen poetry as, uh, for, for the lack of a better terms or words, you know, as word art. Like an amalgamation of ideas sculpted with words evoking imagery and emotion to the artist's intent. Hell, that might be true for all writing. I don't know. But po poetry seems to be just expressly for that, you know? Be it uh, syllabic, lyrical, confessional, like Sylvia's is considered, uh, and so much more. They're, they're about shaping ideas that flow from one line to the next, it's amazing when it's done right. It's It really is breathtaking. Her skill, Sylvia's skill, and her skillful use of imagery and symbolism contribute to the powerful impact of, of her poems. She employs vivid and evocative language to build striking visual and sensory images that fuel the reader's imagination. If you've never read her work, you're really missing out, truly. The recurring symbolism of water, mirrors, horses among others, add depth and layers to, of meaning to the poetry. And by inviting readers to interpret and engage with it on multiple levels, it really, truly represents a transformative phase in Plath's writing, characterized by new, a newfound sense of artistic agency and rebellion. <sighs> she took Robert Lowell's advice and uh, Sexton's advice to heart. Taking the work in a more personal direction. The poems display a defiance against patriarchal norms and a kind of reclaiming of power through language and, and self-expression. Platt's words become a means of liberation and a vehicle for asserting her voice. 
In Ariel, Sylvia uses her own experiences and emotions and transforms them using beautifully chosen, vibrant wording and delves into the depths of the human psyche, exploring themes of despair, isolation, and the the search for self-identity. She confronts her own fears, desires, and vulnerabilities, often using stark and unflinching language. This psychological introspection, it, it lends Ariel a raw authenticity and emotional intensity. Her work is a prime example of confessional poetry, which is a genre characterized by deeply personal and autobiographical subject matter. So, in Ariel, Plath explores her own emotions, experiences, and mental states. And, and it provides the reader with an intimate glimpse into her inner world, you know? The poems reveal raw and often contradictory emotions, reflecting her struggles with mental illness and her tumultuous personal life. Sylvia's work was and is a miracle of poetry. Her phrasing, movement, and descriptive, emotive words are magic. It's truly, truly regrettable that she's gone. I I take umbrage. I fucking, I fucking nailed that word again. I take umbrage with the idea that her suicide is the most important element of her legacy. Or that it has elevated her popularity or drawn more focus to her work. It's, it's almost criminal. I would be stupid to say that it's not an unfortunate agent that's promoted her work too. That they've become intertwined since her death. You know, for me, her death is for me just, just another tragedy on top of tragedy. <sighs> I feel like I may have helped that along in this episode. And I'm sorry about that. So, in an effort to write my own ship, I'll leave you with Sylvia reading her own poetry from Ariel. Because I would never do it justice. And one more time, uh, please remember, if you or someone you know, again, is in danger, is experiencing a crisis, please please get online and contact 988lifeline.org and talk with someone. In the U.S., you can dial 988 on your phone or uh, call one 800 273-8255. It's 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, holidays all the time. They're always there. Don't wait. The wonderfully amazing Sylvia Plath, folks. Daddy, you do not do, you do not do any more black shoe in which I have lived like a foot for 30 years, poor and white, barely daring to breathe or her chew. Daddy, I have had to kill you. You died before I had time, marble heavy, a bag full of God, ghastly statue with one gray toe, big as a Frisco seal, and a head in the freakish Atlantic, where it pours bean green over blue in the waters off beautiful Nosset. I used to pray to recover you, ach du, in the German tongue in the Polish town, scraped flat by the roller of wars, wars, wars. But the name of the town is common. My Polak friend says there are a dozen or two. So I never could tell where you put your foot, your root. I never could talk to you. The tongue stuck in my jaw. It's stuck in a barbed wire snare. Ich, ich, ich. 
E. I could hardly speak. I thought every German was you. And the language obscene, an engine, an engine, chuffing me off like a Jew. A Jew to Dachau, Auschwitz, Belsen. I began to talk like a Jew. I think I may well be a Jew. The snows of the Tyrol, the clear beer of Vienna, are not very pure or true. With my gypsy ancestress and my weird luck and my tarok pack and my tarok pack, I may be a bit of a Jew. I have always been scared of you, with your Luftwaffe, your gobbledygoo, and your neat moustache and your Aryan eye, bright blue. Panzerman, Panzerman, oh you, not God but a swastika, so black no sky could squeak through. Every woman adores a fascist, the boot in the face, the brute, brute heart of a brute like you. You stand at the blackboard, Daddy, in the picture I have of you, a cleft in your chin instead of your foot. But no less a devil for that, no not any less the black man who bit my pretty red heart in two. I was ten when they buried you. At twenty I tried to die and get back back, back to you. I thought even the bones would do. But they pulled me out of the sack, and they stuck me together with glue. And then I knew what to do. I made a model of you, a man in black with a Mein Kampf look, and a love of the rack and the screw, and I said, I do, I do. So, Daddy, I'm finally through. The black telephone's off at the root, the voices just can't worm through. If I've killed one man, I've killed two. The vampire who said he was you and drank my blood for a year, seven years, if you want to know. Daddy, you can lie back now. There's a stake in your fat black heart and the villagers never liked you. They are dancing and stamping on you. They always knew it was you. Daddy, daddy, you bastard, I'm through. Ariel, stasis in darkness, then the substanceless blue pour of tor and distances. God's lioness, how one we grow, pivot of heels and knees, the furrow splits and passes, sister to the brown arc of the neck I cannot catch, nigger eye berries casting dark hooks, black sweet blood mouthfuls, shadows, something else. Holds me through air, thighs, hair, flakes from my heels. White Godiva iron peel, dead hands, dead stringencies. And now I foam to wheat, a glitter of seas. The child's cry melts in the wall. And I am the arrow, the dew that flies, suicidal at one with the drive, into the red eye, the cauldron of morning. The tulips are too excitable. It is winter here. Look how white everything is. How quiet, how snowed in. I am learning peacefulness, lying by myself quietly, as the light lies on these white walls, this bed, these hands. I am nobody. I have nothing to do with explosions. I have given my name and my day clothes up to the nurses and my history to the anesthetist and my body to surgeons. 
They have propped my head between the pillow and the sheet cuff, like an eye between two white lids that will not shut. Stupid pupil, it has to take everything in. The nurses pass and pass, they are no trouble. They pass the way gulls pass inland in their white caps, doing things with their hands, one just the same as another. So it is impossible to tell how many there are. My body is a pebble to them. They tend it as water tends to the pebbles it must run over, smoothing them gently. They bring me numbness in their bright needles. They bring me sleep. Now I have lost myself. I am sick of baggage. My patent leather overnight case like a black pillbox. My husband and child smiling out of the family photo. Their smiles catch onto my skin. Little smiling hooks. I've let things slip. A 30-year-old cargo boat stubbornly hanging on to my name and address. They have swallowed me clear of my loving associations. Scared and bare on the green plastic pillowed trolley, I watched my tea set, my bureaus of linen, my books sink out of sight, and the water went over my head. I am a nun now. I have never been so pure. I didn't want any flowers. I only wanted to lie with my hands turned up and be utterly empty. How free it is! You have no idea how free. The peacefulness is so big it dazes you, and it asks nothing—a name tag, a few trinkets. It is what the dead close on. Finally, I imagine them shutting their mouths on it like a communion tablet. The tulips are too red in the first place. They hurt me. Even through the gift paper, I could hear them breathe lightly through their white swaddlings, like an awful baby. Their redness talks to my wound. It corresponds. They are subtle. They seem to float, though they weigh me down, upsetting me with their sudden tongues and their color. A dozen red lead sinkers round my neck. Nobody watched me before. Now I am watched. The tulips turn to me. And the window behind me, where once a day the light slowly widens and slowly thins, and I see myself flat, ridiculous, a cut paper shadow between the eye of the sun and the eyes of the tulips, and I have no faith. I've wanted to efface myself. The vivid tulips eat my oxygen. Before they came, the air was calm enough, coming and going, breath by breath. Without any fuss, then the tulips filled it up like a loud noise. Now the air snags and eddies round them, the way a river snags and eddies round a sunken, rust-red engine. They concentrate my attention. It was happy, playing and resting, without committing itself. The walls also seem to be warming themselves. The tulips should be behind bars. Like dangerous animals, they are opening like the mouth of some great African cat, and I am aware of my heart. It opens and closes its bowl of red blooms out of sheer love of me. The water I taste is warm and salt, like the sea, and comes from a country far away as health. Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. If you like the episode. Please give it a five-star review on your podcast provider of choice. Also, you can contribute to the production of this podcast via 
Patreon, where where you'll get uh, episodes of another podcast I, ha- I have up there. <sighs> you can also recommend this to a friend, relative, whoever you think might like it. Uh, spreading the word helps a lot. It's the only uh, it's the only kind of viral worth being a part of these days. You know what I mean. Above all else, thank you for listening. I appreciate it, truly. Oh, and start a book this week. Or finish a book this week. You know, will you? Come on. Don't let them die out. All right? Thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.